Harpooning Your Ears with George Bendo, Indy Leclerc, Mark Perler, and Jim Zeltz. The Jodcast, August 2014, Hector Edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today are George and Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Dr. David Kipping about detecting exomoons, and Dr. Joe Zantz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Libby interviews Dr. Rob Bezik in this month's Jodbite. Joining me on the Jodcast today is Dr. Rob Beswick from the University of Manchester. Hello, Rob. Hello there. So, Rob, can you tell me about what your position is at the university? Okay, well, basically I work for eMerlin, and eMerlin is uh, the UK's national interferometric facility, and we work at Jodrell Bank Observatory, and we connect multiple telescopes across the UK to do astronomical observations using high-resolution radio. Uh, so we have seven telescopes that are spread over a baseline length of up to 200 kilometres, and we join those signals together to make radio images. So by baseline length, do you just mean the distance between the telescopes? Yeah, I mean the distance between the telescopes. So we have telescopes uh, situated both at Joddle Bank Observatory and then also spread through Cheshire and then through to the southeast of England uh, with our furthest telescope actually situated in Cambridge. So we bring back all the signals from those telescopes back to the observatory where we use data processing techniques to form images. And is that what eMerlin is? Yeah, that's basically what eMerlin is. So uh, we use interferometry to bring those signals back together and then we sample those uh, those data to form images as if we're synthesising a telescope that's around 200 kilometres in diameter. So the maximum baseline length of the interferometer is equivalent to the dish size of our telescope. So if you wanted to observe something, all these seven telescopes would be pointing in the same direction at the same object at the same time? Absolutely. So we schedule all of our observations from the observatory where we run all of our telescopes remotely and we'll observe a single source or our target observation. We'll use all of the telescopes simultaneously observing the same patch of sky for a period of time to integrate to get our image and get our data. And all these telescopes, are they very close together or are they set at set, set, set intervals? They're, they're actually quite randomly spread uh, with Merlin because it's organically grown in the sense that we had multiple telescopes in different sites and we've built the array up. So uh, the separations range from around 10 kilometres all the way to a couple of hundred kilometres. So quite a varied spacings. And does that make the image better? Can you see deeper or is it higher resolution? It gives us the higher resolution. So the longer the longest baseline is, the higher the resolution, so the greater the seeing power of the instrument is. However, having more and more telescopes gives us more sensitivity. So with an interferometric observation, what we want is to get a range of spacings because they give us the equivalent of different spatial sizes of the observations that we're detecting. So we want a wide range of those. And that's one of the big advantages of eMerlin is we have a wide range of telescope spacings. And then we can also use different techniques to try and fill in the gaps as well. And what type of objects are observed? Uh, eMerlin is a common user facility, so astronomers from around the world just propose to do their science with it, and in that sense we look at a wide range of objects. So everything from very distant galaxies to gravitational lenses, but also right down to stars or, or planet-forming uh, systems within our own galaxy, uh, pulsars for instance as well. So we cover almost all types of uh, radio astronomy science that can be done. And can you tell us a bit about the history from E. Merlin and Merlin. 
Okay, the history with Merlin and eMerlin. Uh, eMerlin is, is the instrument we have now, which uh, is an upgrade to Merlin. But historically, Merlin was developed over the last uh, 30 years or so by work that's been done at the observatory here, where we've basically extended our baselines that we're using to make observations and added new telescopes. Um, this has just allowed us to increase the angular resolution that we can uh, achieve with our observations so we can look at sources in more and more detail. Um, this work gradually evolved and we increased the baseline lengths and originally Merlin was operating with different set of telescopes, less telescopes, and then we've extended that and we added the Cambridge telescope in the early 90s. Since that time, Merlin ran for around 20 years or so um, and that was using the infrastructure of the telescope's but bringing back the data using microwave links. So we would send back our data signals from each telescope using a microwave tower transmitting the data back to Jodrell, which was intrinsically narrow bandwidth. So in essence, we were throwing away the vast majority of the data that each of those telescopes was collecting. Around five years ago, five to ten years ago, we started developing Merlin, which is a new instrument that's come online that uses exactly the same hardware in terms of the physical telescopes as old Merlin. However, what we've done is we've integrated a new data transfer system where we now use optical fibers to bring back the data, which allows us to bring back a vast amount more data, which allows us to, in essence, increase our observation speed, our sensitivity to the instrument, by an order of magnitude or so. So now we can do an observation in a day that would have taken us a couple of years to do, well, wow. or certainly a few weeks to years. Was that just due to the upgrade in speed that you can transfer the large data sets? Or yes. did you do any other upgrades as well? Well, we did a whole series of upgrades because in order to make the telescope a better instrument for doing science, primarily the increase in sensitivity is down to the amount of data that we can bring back. So previously we were bringing back 16 megahertz of bandwidth. So it's a very small part of the radio spectrum back from each telescope because we were limited by the amount of data we bring back. Now with eMerlin, what we've done is we've installed our own dark fiber network which brings back the data and instead of having 16 megahertz of bandwidth we can bring back up to half a gig or ultimately two gigahertz of bandwidth so a massive increase in the bandwidth of data that we're doing and the amount of spectrum of the sky we're observing at any one time so that just increases the sensitivity. But the telescopes you had were they all purpose built for astronomy or were they any other uses that have been integrated into the network? Well, most of them were purpose-built for astronomy. Uh, there were some exceptions. Um, the Defford telescope was originally used for radar work and then it has been used for astronomy for the last 20-odd years now. And we're also looking at integrating other telescopes that are have been in the recent past been used for uh, satellite communication work so uh, we're at the moment involved in a project that is potentially integrating one of the telescopes in Goonhilly into eMerlin to add another dish and increase the baseline length yet again to double our resolution. And to having multiple telescopes as well as increasing the resolution make it easy to get rid of any noise and interference? Well, because we do radio, with eMerlin, we do radio observations in the UK, and the UK is obviously quite a populous country, there is a lot of radio interference. Compared to single-dish observations where you're using a single radio telescope, interferometry has some distinct advantages. We need to see the interference on both telescopes simultaneously because we bring back the signals from each telescope and we cross-multiply them together in a correlator. Uh, so interference is only relevant on our data when we can see that interference signal on multiple telescopes at the same time. Now, of course, there is interference because we observe outside of the protected spectrum of bands 
so there is a lot of interference around. However, this mitigates the problem somewhat and allows us to still observe over quite a large area of bandwidth in terms of frequency. And with having many different telescopes, that means there'll be a lag between the sending of the, observa the observations and getting back to the main site. Do you have to correct for everything like that? We have to correct for all the timing. So um, all of our signals are time-stamped at the telescopes when we bring them back to a central correlating facility. Now, that does mean that we need to get our signals lined up to fractions of nanoseconds in terms of precision. So we monitor that, and then we use our on-sky calibration to work that out as well. Okay, and... Finally, I'd like to start to ask you about an image you made for Stargazing Live with the public involved and then you process everything overnight. Can you tell us a bit more about the whole process? Well, that was an interesting uh, event, actually. So um, during the Star Stargazing Live programmes, there was a, a citizen science exercise to identify a gravitational lens from some optical and infrared observations that were made. During that program, uh, we decided that we, we would try to follow up one of the primary lens candidates that the public had identified from that. Uh, so we started our observations actually on the second night of that program, or almost simultaneously with the show going live. And we observed that source for six hours or so, because that was how long the source was up in the sky before it set. And then overnight, we uh, looked to try to reduce that data. The data was correlated as it came in, as all Merlin observations are, and then we used that data to try and then make an image, which we were able to make an image over by the end of the next show. And in fact, only really a couple of hours before that show went out the next day. So we spent most of the night calibrating and imaging our data. So is it the time it takes to transfer the data, sync it all up together, and then get rid of all the noise? And Which is the longest time step involved? The observations themselves happen automatically so we will observe a source for maybe uh, 6 to 12 hours and get a full synthesis run so we're allowing the Earth's rotation to synthesize more baseline points in our observation and that allows us to get a higher fidelity image so that happens for over a period of time so we'll observe for say 12 hours and then that data becomes ready to reduce at that point scientists like myself will look at the data and we will try to remove bad portions of the data when there is maybe a problem with the telescope for instance if it's windy and the telescope is unable to observe or whether there's interference in there. So we'll remove and expunge certain chunks of the data that aren't useful astronomically. And then we'll go through a process of calibrating the data and then finally imaging the data. That is a computer-intensive period of time to try and reduce that data, and that can take a few hours to, to days if you want to do it very, very carefully. So is there a particular area of science which you like to use the email in uh, array for? Yeah, well, I'm I'm primarily an extragalactic radio astronomer, so I um, study galaxies. My research covers two areas, primarily where I look at nearby galaxies, trying to study star formation processes and accretion processes in detail. And the advantages of using an instrument like eMerlin or other radio interferometers around the world is that you can gain very high resolution in the radio and you can use the radio to see through the dust content of these galaxies. So we can look at star formation in very high detail within an individual galaxy. So we can look at things like new supernova events that have gone off and measure the star formation rate within those galaxies. So that's one portion of my research, and it's a large portion that I do with eMerlin, where I um, lead one of the largest eMerlin legacy projects to look at a large sample of uh, nearby galaxies to try and get a, a full picture of what the star formation 
processes are in the nearby universe. In addition with emailing, one of the things we do here and one of the things I'm very heavily involved in is to look at galaxies at the opposite end of the universe to look at high redshift galaxies. And in that sense, what we do is we try and look at relatively blank portions of the sky, but look with incredibly uh, high sensitivity. So we'll integrate for many hours, many weeks on a single patch of sky to get the most sensitive images we can to try and look at objects and galaxies at the high redshift. Uh, my research tries to bring those two areas together by understanding the detailed physics that is ongoing within the local universe where we can study things in great detail and then try and use that understanding to give us a better handle of what's going on in the high redshift universe. So by looking at these very nearby galaxies, or well I say very nearby, but local galaxies mm. and local area galaxies, yeah. um, you can have an idea of in detail the process of the star forming regions. Yeah. So by using the radio you can peel back all the, the dust and everything will be in the way. And you can see straight to the, the areas that are Yeah. Hit. This is one of the great advantages of using radio is that basically you can see through the dust. So the dust has no obscuring properties like it does in the optical. So what we can do is we can actually look at the individual star forming processes right in the centre of these galaxies. So I like to look at galaxies where there is quite a lot of star formation going on. So one of my pet galaxies is M82, which is a nearby galaxy around 3 megaparsecs away. Now that galaxy in the middle there has a massive amount of star formation ongoing and it produces a new radio supernova or a new supernova about once every 10 years. There was one that went off just last year in fact. But you don't see these, these supernova very often in the optical because most of the time they're obscured by the dust. Occasionally we see one like SN2014J which went off at the beginning part of this year on the outskirts of the galaxy where we can see it in the optical but most of the time these sources are buried deep inside a very dusty obscured region. So the only way to really access them is via the radio. So that gives us a whole handle of star formation processes that are just basically invisible to other wavelengths. Well one actually assumes supernova is the end of a star's life, so how does that tell you about how stars are being formed? You're right. Um, a supernova is the end portion of a massive star's life. So this is a massive star that has evolved relatively quickly in terms of stellar evolution process. So by measuring and looking at numbers of new supernova, that gives you a handle on how much massive star formation is ongoing. So that gives you a global picture on the star formation rate of galaxies by a different means to looking at new stars that are being formed. It allows us to look at the old stars that have evolved and gone bang in essence in the supernova. But the other advantage is when you look at high resolution, we can also look at the ISM physics. So we can actually measure the expansion of these supernova shocks. So one area that I like to do with instruments such as the Merlin is in a nearby galaxy you can actually resolve the shock front of a supernova as it goes as it explodes and expands into the interstellar medium around it so by looking over a long period of time number of years not even that long actually lifetime of a phd you can actually measure the expansion of an individual supernova and you can measure its speed of expansion that's maybe twenty thousand kilometers per second as the material is hitting the uh, gas in and dust within that galaxy and we can see the shock wave of that which emits the radio waves that we can see with a telescope like Merlin. Awesome. And finally, I'd just like to ask you, what do you see as the future for E-Merlin? Well, E-Merlin itself is a brand new instrument. We've only been operating for just over two years now as a fully production instrument. So there's a lot of science that can be done with E-Merlin. Uh, we're just starting to really um, cut away into that science thing. Now, 
The big advantage of e-Merlin is this massive increase in sensitivity. So over the next few years, e-Merlin will be used to survey the sky, in particular high-resolution observations of certain targeted objects, um, and really get down to that microchansky sensitivity, which is really faint in terms of radio observations. Um, because of the resolution of e-Merlin, we can start to resolve galaxies at all redshifts, and that will give us a really big handle on the size structure and the composition of galaxies across cosmic history. In the longer term future, uh, radio astronomy is moving towards the SKA, which is the next uh, major radio telescope to be built in the world. And e-Merlin is a pathfinder instrument for that. We're using our technological developments that we've used to build and operate e-Merlin as a pathfinder for some of the technology that will be needed for the SKA. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rob. Now Wendy talks to Dr. David Kipping about exomoons. Today I'm with Dr. David Kipping from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for being with us. David's center of interest is a topic that we've touched upon in the podcast, especially in our odds and ends segments, quite a bit. And it's exomoons, or exoplanets, and specifically exomoons. So to start things off, could you just uh, give us an outline of what your research involves and um, how you detect and look for these uh, exomoons? Sure. Uh, so we're looking for these moons, which are around planets outside the solar system, exomoons. And the way we look for these things is basically by the most popular method, which is being used to find planets these days, and that's the transit method. So this is when you have a planet which has its alignment just at the right inclination, such that you happen to see it pass in front of its host star, once every orbital period. So for the Earth and the Sun, that would happen once every 365 days if you're an alien looking at the solar system. But the alien would also see, just before or just afterwards, a little tiny extra dip in brightness. So you get one dip in brightness as the planet casts a shadow basically on the face of the star, and then another little dip in brightness, either just before or just afterwards, due to the little moon, which is a companion to it. So essentially we're scouring through all of this beautiful photometry collected by the NASA Kepler space mission and trying to find these little extra dips just to the sides of the main transit events. How do you know, how does Kepler know where to start off? Uh, do you just choose random stars and point your telescope at a star and think, with any luck, there'll be an exoplanet here and, and we might be able to see it? How does the selection process work? There is method to the madness. It's not, <laughs> yeah, we don't just randomly point. Probably a big work if we did that. Actually, what we do is, first of all, we know... Um, only a fraction of Kepler's stars. It looks at 200,000 stars any one time. Actually, it's stopped looking right now. It's uh, now moved to a different field in its second phase of its mission. But originally, it was looking at 200,000 stars. And of those 200,000, it found about 4,000 Kepler planetary candidates. So it couldn't confirm absolutely every single one was a genuine bona fide planet. But it saw 4,000 dips, which looked like there were planets. So first off, we have those 4,000 objects, which are probably much more worthwhile to look at than just a random star. And then, of course, 4,000 is still a very big number. It's a big work to look through 4,000 planets. So then we down-select on those. And essentially what we want is a planet which is far enough away from its host star, such that it could hold onto a moon. And you can see that if you look at the solar system, the Earth and all the planets beyond the Earth going out into the solar system have moons, whereas Venus and Mercury, which are closer to the Sun, do not. So as you get closer to a star, the gravitational influence of the star starts to rip off moons. So you want a planet which is fairly far out. And second of all, you want a planet which is not too small. Uh, you want a planet which is you know, Neptune size or Jupiter size. And then it has a much better chance of holding onto a moon for a long period of time. 
by virtue of its stronger gravity. So we tend to make our target selection based on those criteria. Finding an exoplanet in itself is a pretty, I can imagine, a pretty difficult task. And the, the dip in the light must be absolutely tiny because stars are just so much bigger than their planets. So um, how do you how do you make sure that the dip is, is definitely due to a planet and then the moon and not just something else or yeah. something from problem with the telescope? Yeah, so what happens with a, a normal planet signal, and again, you can think about this with the Earth around the sun, every 365 days you see the Earth go in front of the star, and it's like clockwork. Every single 365 days you see the same event, the same shape, the same depth, it looks exactly the same. But then, to the left or to the right of it, you see a signal which seems to be sort of random. It's either, sometimes it's over to the left, sometimes it's over to the right, and it's clearly not following that same clockwork cycle. And the reason is because it's kind of following a clockwork all of its own. Instead of orbiting the star, it's going around the planet. And by seeing where those events are, you can actually potentially work out what is the, the orbital period of the moon going around that planet. So what we do is we look at the timings, basically. The planet should be like once every year, once every 365 days or whatever the orbital period is. Whereas the moon will sort of look random when you first look at the data. But when, when you do a more detailed sort of dynamical analysis, you realize it's not random. There is a pattern to those shifts. So the big question, have you found any convincing exomoons? Not yet. Uh, <laughs> we've, uh, we've been scouring the Kepler data for about a year and a half, two years now. And the first problem we had, we had some teething problems doing a project like this, as is always the case. And the teething problem we had is that this requires really big computers. And the reason is because you're basically simulating a mini solar system on a computer, which takes a lot of time to sort of dynamically evolve all of these motions. And then on top of that, Kepler has collected many uh, hundreds of thousands of data points. And every single data point, we need to simulate these events so it's over the last two years, because of these constraints, we've got through about 20 planets. So we've looked wow. at 20 planets in detail, and we can say in those 20 planets, there's no moon there. And we can say in about one in three cases, there are no moons there which have the same ratio as Pluto does to Charon. That's uh, Pluto's moon. Mm -hmm. And in one in six cases, we can rule out Earth-Moon mass ratios. So that's about a 1% mass ratio. The moon is about 1% the mass of the Earth. Right. So even with Kepler data, which is a mission, I should say, not designed to find exomoons, we've been able to use it to say that in some cases we can tell there is definitely not a moon of the same mass ratio as the Earth-Moon system. Of course, what we're hoping for is to get a positive detection. You know, mm -hmm. a null detection is great, and it's great to get these upper limits. Sure. But what we really want to do is find a genuine moon system and uh, we're hoping that in the next year or two we should find them because everything we've learned about exoplanets finds that it's capable of building any kind of system you can kind of imagine. It's mm -hmm. extremely uh, imaginative in nature. It can build anything. Right. So what we're hoping is that the Earth-Moon system is not a fluke and there are things like that out there. And if there are, we should find them in the next year or two. It's really work that we're going we're gonna to grab by sort of 2015, 2016. We should both have found a moon by that point. So it's pretty much just a numbers game at this point where you're thinking there, have, there has to be some sort of uh, moon visible to us in the, in the data that we have already. Yeah. In fact, it would be, it'd be kind of disappointing, but also remarkable if we didn't find anything. It would increase our sort of special place in the universe mm -hmm. if... Not only is the Earth at just the right distance from its star to have liquid water, it's just the right size, has all of these Goldilocks conditions, 
But what if also our moon is incredibly unique and no other planets out there in the universe have moons like ours? So I think uh, obviously it'd be disappointing if we didn't find anything, but there's actually a remarkable consequence of not finding anything at all. Going back to something you said before, so Kepler isn't really designed for finding exomoons, but I mean, this is presumably the first time that people even looked for exomoons in, mm -hmm. in this sort of data. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible with previous telescopes. Yeah. I guess if you find one, there's going to be a groundswell of support for more exomoon-finding missions. I would have thought so. I mean, 20 years ago, we'd never found an exoplanet before. There were people who were working on it, such as Jeff Marcy, and they tell these stories that when they told colleagues and friends they were looking for planets outside the solar system, their colleagues would sort of put their heads down and look uncomfortable around them and sort of, you know, almost feel embarrassed for them for having the, this crazy idea of looking for planets outside the solar system. And now it's like... How could you not have realized yeah. there was so many planets out there? Uh, why wasn't everyone trying to do that? And I, of course, it's people jump on the bandwagon once the detection's been made. I guess probably the same thing's going to happen if, if we get lucky and we find an exomoon, that this whole field will explode. And I guess that we're going to open up a door into an entirely new type of astronomical object. We have stars we can look at, we have galaxies we can look at, we have planets we can look at. Mm -hmm. And we'll add on an extra category, which will be moons outside the solar system, which we can look at. So it'll be an entirely new subfield, I think, of scientific endeavor to study these yeah. things. So there's a huge potential, but it's it's challenging to get to that first one, to cross that threshold. Actually, I just want, I had another question in my mind. I think a lot of our listeners will be wondering, because we talk about these things all the time, but how far away is the sort of average exoplanet or exomoon system? Like All of the stars which the Kepler mission looks at are actually pretty far away. Um, we're talking about 1,000, 2,000 light years away. And that's because its its observing strategy is um, what's called sort of a, a deep field mode. It stares at one patch of the sky continuously. And if you, of course, if you just take one patch of the sky, then there's probably not going to be many stars in the foreground. So the way it gets up to that huge number of 200,000 stars is by looking very deep, by looking very deep into space, very far away. By doing that, it's able to be very stable because it doesn't have to move. It just points at that same patch of the sky continuously. And that was very easy technologically to, to build an instrument which didn't have to move around too much. Now, of course, that's great. But what we want to do is find planets nearer to, mm -hmm. to Earth, nearer yeah. to home. So maybe we could go on a vacation there in the near future. <laughs> and um, one of the missions coming up, actually two missions coming up, one is uh, NASA's test mission, which will be a similar design to Kepler, but it will be slightly smaller, uh, yet looking at stars closer. So it doesn't have to be as big as Kepler. And it will have this uh, very complicated pointing mode where it will basically look at every single part of the sky over its two-year mission. Okay. So it will be looking at all over the sky and finding planets much, much closer to home. These will be planets which will be sort of anywhere from 20 light years up to sort of 500 light years. Planets much closer to home, planets which you yeah. might even think about sending a probe to one day. Right. And again, PLATO, which is the European mission, which was also recently selected, that'll be flying um, about five years later. So we have TESS in 2018 and PLATO in 2024. And these missions are both designed to find the nearest planets to home and uh, maybe even the nearest exomoons to home as well. Nice. Yeah, that's 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 really, really exciting. Well, given the example of our own solar system, I reckon the different moons of the planets on our solar system are probably the most exciting places. You get places like Europa with the ice. And in, in the same way of thinking, uh, exomoons will probably have a, maybe more potential to harbor life than, than exoplanets because a lot of the ones, the exoplanets we're seeing are all these sort of big like Jupiter-like planets or, or mm -hmm. gassy giants and because they're the bigger ones and they're the ones we can see right now. So yeah. 
it, would there be any way of studying exomoons in, 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 in as much detail as we have exoplanets? Well, I think you touched on a really interesting point there, and that's, you know, moons could be habitable. Uh, we don't know of anywhere in the in the universe right now that's habitable apart from the Earth, unfortunately. Uh, we're looking very closely at Mars. We're sending, obviously, rovers there right now to try and dig up soil. And we know of moons, as you say, like Europa, which maybe could also have life as well. The beauty of moons in terms of habitability is that they can have habitable conditions much further away from their star than a planet could. So if you think about the Earth, if I moved Earth all the way to where Jupiter is, much further away from the host star, it would freeze, and there'd be no heat source. It would just be a ball of ice. Now, if you take Europa around Jupiter or any of the Galilean satellites, yes, they have a cold surface, but underneath that we think there's actually a liquid ocean. And that liquid ocean is being heated by internal energy from inside the moon, and that internal energy is basically Jupiter's gravity. So when you're a moon going around a planet, you can actually receive extra heating. It's called tidal heating. So the same thing which causes the waves on our planet due to the moon, the tides, that same energy is kind of put on steroids when you become a moon around a planet like Jupiter. And that same energy can deposit so much heat that it can basically give you sort of conditions almost like um, in Iceland, where you have these kind of icy springs where hot water bubbles up and that's where you might find life so i think moons have an enormous potential a very diverse range of habitable conditions which could be present that's amazing well i guess that the telescopes will have to be even even more powerful to be able to detect things like atmospheres or, or different sort of reflectivities to to figure out what's going on on the surface though so before we send any probes <laughs> absolutely absolutely and uh we're, we're hopefully going to have that with uh, the james webb space telescope in, uh, I think that's about 2018 as well. And this will be a, a mission which is going to do a diverse range of things from cosmology to galaxy formation. But one of its big components will be to try to measure, smell the atmospheres mm -hmm. of planets uh, far away and maybe even detect the, the biosignatures that life reveals in the atmosphere. So um, the future is very bright. James Webb is going to be a big step towards uh, finding biomarkers. And uh, if anything, I just would hope for more missions like that we have several, many planet hunting missions, yeah. but only really this one planet smelling mission, if you like, yeah. just James Webb's t Space Telescope. Sure. So I'd like to have more missions maybe in the future that could actually characterize these worlds in more detail. And then we'll be all set. Just send a probe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're that much closer. Well, Jodcasters, you heard it here first. The science of exomoons is alive and well. <laughs> Thanks a lot for talking to us today, David. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the identity. Now, we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. To kick things off, I've got a, an update on everyone's favourite comet mission. That would, of course, be the ESA-Rosetta mission, which we've mentioned now numerous times, both in uh, Jodcast News and in Odds and Ends. And on the 6th of August, the exciting news finally arrived that Rosetta has turned up right next to the comet, as was planned. So after a series of 10 orbital manoeuvres that slowly got it closer and closer to the comet, it is now moving with a relative speed of one metre per second with respect to the comet. So this is really walking pace. It's as if Rosetta was just kind of trundling along right next to the comet. And um, at the moment, it's, it's about 100 kilometres away from the comet, and it's still getting closer. So over the next sort of six weeks or so, it's going to describe two triangles around the comet and these sort of triangular orbits will decrease in distance so the first one's going to be about 100 kilometers and then it's slowly going to get closer to 50 kilometers and at the same time all of the instruments on board Rosetta are going to take all sorts of measurements all sorts of data to study the comet and also 
The scientists are going to look at the surface in great detail to try and find the optimal landing site for the lander, called Philae. And after these two triangular sort of orbits are completed, Rosetta's going to then get an even closer to about 30 kilometers above the surface of the comet and attempt an almost near-circular orbit. All this, of course, is in preparation for the moment, probably so far scheduled for sometime in November, when it's going to release the lander, and hopefully the goal is for the lander to dock with the comet, so it's going to basically float down, because the relative velocity between the two, between the lander and the comet, is going to be absolutely tiny. And it's just sort of going to float down, land on the comet, and deploy uh, two... Uh, harpoons to really latch on to the surface of the comet and then it's going to put into play uh, all of its instruments take samples of what the comet's made of drill down a little bit and uh, and and send all this data back to the scientists so by late august the goal is to is to identify at least five different landing sites uh, and then they're going to choose amongst those landing sites to to define the primary site in mid september all this is obviously subject to what they find on the comet, and the, the timeline isn't really set in stone, but the landing timeline is expected to be confirmed by the uh, by the middle of October. And once Philae's landed, of course Rosetta's still going to stay around the comet in this, in this sort of near orbit, and it's going to go all the way with the comet as it goes all the way to, to perihelion, to the closest part, its closest approach to the sun, and then all the way back again. So this is this is really now we're entering the final stages of the Rosetta mission and 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 it's uh, it's the money time as they say. So you said that Rosetta is currently uh, hundreds of kilometers away from the comet. About a hundred, basically, uh, right now. So yeah. Literally. So how large is the comet itself? Just to give people an idea of how distant that really is compared to the comet itself, because a hundred kilometers away from the Earth doesn't seem like a whole lot. Uh, so the comet itself. It's got a sort of weird shape where it's got two lobes that are kind of joined together by a skinny bit in the middle, but it's expected to be about, yeah, roughly five kilometers in diameter at its widest point. So in terms of the size of the comet, Rosetta is still very far away. It is still very far away. I mean, the comet is actually this really tiny target that it still needs to to approach much more carefully, but according to ESA, um, Rosetta is completely on track and, and is and, and is well-placed to, to land on the comet in a few months' time. I'm amazed that it can go into orbit around such a small thing. I mean, obviously, if the orbit's slow enough, you can do it, but the gravity must be so weak. It would only take a little push to send it flying off into space. Maybe. Yeah, I think I think that's why they're using such an irregular... It, it's sort of this triangular-shaped orbit, and I'm not exactly sure how they've they've managed to figure out that that's the best way to do it. But um, I think it's difficult to have like a regular... What people imagine as a circular orbit, I think this thing is just kind of going away from it and more towards it um is it firing little i think i think thrusters? it is it must firing. Be, you can't yeah. just do a triangle no no, no exactly <laughs> exactly, kind of exactly um so it's it's in a sort of flight pattern that's being probably constantly adjusted by the uh by the uh mission control and so really inching closer because as you say i mean 100 kilometers is still far away 50 kilometers for a five kilometer wide object that's still fairly far away so it was it is really inching closer and i think they don't know yet how close rosetta will be able to get uh the number that's being thrown around now is 30 kilometers at the closest point but i think that's going they're going to see as they go along whether it's going to be feasible or not to get closer than that or not cool we're looking forward to that in the coming months 
So the odds and ends which I brought to today's broadcast is based on a news article from uh, BBC from about a week ago uh, discussing uh, the conflict in the Ukraine. At the time of this recording, we have a lot of chaos in the world. We have uh, an Ebola epidemic in West Africa. We have uh, ongoing uh civil war in Iraq and in Ukraine and frequently these types of world uh events uh don't have that much effect on astronomy but it turns out that the uh conflict in Ukraine uh could have some uh type of uh, impact on manned uh space missions uh, and this is because uh, the United States and Europe uh, have started imposing sanctions on Russia, and Russia has started imposing sanctions on the United States and Europe in regards to the Ukraine conflict. Russia and the European Space Agency and NASA are all collaborating on the International Space Station. And the United States, in particular... Uh, is dependent on Russia to get astronauts into space because they have now discontinued the space shuttle program. So if Russia escalates its sanctions against uh, the United States, they may uh, decide to stop offering rides to uh, astronauts trying to get to the space station, which would somewhat substantially affect the operation of the International Space Station. It's not clear what would happen after that, but it would be disappointing if the International Space Station were to uh, cease operations because uh, uh, the international collaboration broke down. The other issue, though, which people may not immediately think about, is that the United States space program also depends on Russia for other things, and in particular... NASA uses Atlas V rockets, which include engines that are made in Russia. So if Russia decides to stop exporting its rocket engines, then NASA would be forced to find alternative sources for engines for its rockets. What's also kind of complicating all of this is that um, the United States is giving a lot of money to Russia uh, for its space program, but a lot of this money also goes to Russian military activities. Similarly, uh, the rockets which NASA uses, which require the Russian engines, are often used for military payloads. So it's kind of an awkward situation in some ways, where you've had collaboration for a while, and then suddenly... There is a military conflict which doesn't directly involve either uh, the United States or Russia, but which could affect uh, space-based activity because, uh, well, partly because of straightforward sanctions, but also because uh, people are exchanging money or technology related to uh, military activities. Yeah, hopefully it won't affect the space station too much because that's sort of like a it's a joint American, Russian, European project. So if any one of them were to start letting the sanctions affect it, it would be kind of also affecting themselves as well. And it's one of those areas where 
it's a really good tool for overcoming political differences if you like and uh, it would be a, it'd be a great shame if it got affected it's always a shame when science is politicized yeah definitely the world is complicated <laughs> it's difficult <laughs> unfortunately yeah so i'm older than the uh other people on the uh well presenting today but i can remember the end of the cold war and also uh uh, the International Space Station more or less came about as a result of the general feelings of collaboration in the international community uh, after the Cold War. It's just disappointing in some ways that um, that collaborative spirit is now disintegrating. Oh, thanks for that. Um, Mark, what have you got to share with us this month? I've got some less complicated life forms than humans. <laughs> um they're probably less political, too. Well, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> this is all about life in Antarctica. So Antarctica is a famously hostile environment, um, but there have been groups from the US and from Russia drilling down under the ice sheets of Antarctica and uh, looking into um, the liquid lakes that are beneath them. And this story is about the American group who've gone into a lake called Lake Willans. They've drilled through a lot of ice and they've gone 800 meters beneath the bottom of the ice sheet and they've discovered lots of, uh, well, microbes, little organisms living. And it's just another example of very extreme conditions in which life can exist. And in this case, the problem isn't that there's any kind of poisonous sulfur around, which some other life forms have been found to thrive on and it's not that it's very very hot but it's simply that it's very cold and very dark and no sunlight gets down there so the question is if you're living down there you're a little microbe how on earth do you get any energy um, and, and what they've said is that the ice uh, tends to move so glaciologists if that is in fact a word um, who are interested in the motions of of glaciers um have been looking at how these ice sheets move and apparently because of these underground uh, bodies of water that are connected by rivers you can sometimes get under ice floods and the ice sheet can sort of go up and then later it comes down again and that's all along with its motion and so the result is that it's it's always grinding things up and apparently it grinds up rock and this goes into the water and it contains compounds like ammonium and sulfides and nitrate and by altering these molecules, the little organisms can gain energy and live. Wow. And that's how they do it, apparently. That's incredible. And it's just really interesting, not just for Earth, but because there are these frozen environments out in the solar system, like Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, but it gets heated, I think, tidally by Jupiter. And so underneath all this ice on Europa, there may be liquid lakes and... So it would be one of those places where we might go in the solar system and still have a hope of finding some life. So the next question is, which hostile environment on Earth does not host life? Given <laughs> Good that, question. Yeah. Uh, maybe inside a volcano in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing, I don't know. Or even there. Oh. Probably end up finding like magma bacteria or something. <laughs> <so> ridiculous. <laughs> Reminds me of that Jeff, Jeff Goldblum line in Jurassic Park, life. Uh, finds a way. <laughs> Life finds a way. Yeah. Famously scientifically accurate <laughs> movie. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not we're not going anywhere near dinosaurs just yet. <laughs>
the Russian group is quite interesting as well because they've gone into Lake Vostok. Uh, this was actually a year ago when they announced their results, but they were the first ones to find life down there. And what I found really amusing was they, so they said this life is only 86% genetically similar to other life on Earth. Wow. And apparently anything that's less than 90% similar to what's been discovered before is really, really new. But it also means that we're all sort of at least 86% the same as microbes. Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> when you said that, well, the first thing I thought was, oh, there's, you know, it's kind of a f alien life forms almost because it's yeah. that different to That's everything true. else. I mean, they've had such a different evolutionary path that they branched off so early that, and living in such alien environments that it may as well be. Well, how recently did they branch off? Antarctica wasn't always the uh, Arctic environment True. that it is today. Yeah, that I don't know. I mean, the, the, one of the people on this project, uh, co-principal investigator, said they wouldn't rule out finding higher life forms like little nematode worms and tardigrades right. and stuff. But on the other hand, they say they don't have any evidence for that. Yeah. Um, but they, they weren't ruling it out. So obviously it has been connected to the rest of the ecosystem. That's really cool. But presumably if you found something on Europa, it would be zero percent similar to life on earth unless well life came from yeah i mean okay yeah that's this is pure speculation isn't it but i don't you, you, yeah surely well that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> how many ways are there to make life yeah well that was that was really interesting and now we've got um another extreme life form who really sees sunlight for you here's uh dr joe's answering your questions in this month's ask an astronomer our first question comes from Nigel Edwards, who wrote in wondering how a photon would experience the passage of time as it travelled through the universe. For example, a photon emitted by a star 100,000 light years away from Earth would take 100,000 years to get to us from our perspective, but would the photon see that journey as instantaneous? So the, the big answer to the question is that yes, a photon does not experience time. As far as a photon is concerned, every journey is instantaneous no matter what it does. Um, so the questions that come out from that are why and so what? Um, so as to why, um, you may have been told or you may be familiar that, with the idea that nothing can go at the speed of light if, if it's got mass. Um, that's not quite true. Um, actually, you are going at the speed of light right now, um, but you are going at the speed of light not in space, but in time. You are travelling forward in time at the speed of light. Um, when something moves in space, that sort of changes the angle at which it's moving in the sort of space-time axis, so that the more you move in space, the less you're moving in time. And a photon is moving so fast in space that it's not moving at all in time. Um, that's a fairly uh, heuristic picture or a fairly uh, uh, first-pass picture of, of what's going on. But the, the, the maths that back that up are really map, map to that very, very closely. Um, the consequence is also very interesting. And it is that if we see anything changing, we know that it has mass. So if something is changing, that means time is passing for it. And that, in turn, means that it, it's not going at the speed of light, and therefore it must have some mass. And we use this fact to determine that, for example, neutrinos had to have some mass. When we saw them mutating from one form of neutrino to another, that meant that time had to be passing for them, otherwise they couldn't change, and that meant they must have some kind of mass. So this fact is not only kind of interesting and has a good theoretical backdrop, uh, it's also got some very important consequences for sort of, the everyday physicist as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Thanks, Joe. Our second question comes from Margaret Feaster uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. And she asks an apparently simple question, but with quite far-reaching consequences. Does the Earth's wobble affect the Moon's orbit? So yes, this is a deceptively hard question, um, and it's a job for Enrico Fermi. 
So as well as being a, a pioneer of nuclear and quantum physics, Enrico Fermi was a proponent of what we now call Fermi estimation, which is uh, trying to estimate quite hard numbers, not super accurately, just to within a factor of 10 or so. So when you don't have time to kind of work out the exact details of something and why the real physics is really very hard, you get a rough idea of something by remembering approximate numbers and doing what my university lecturer called uh, skillful lying to simplify your life. So that's approximating things so that they nicely cancel out. Um, so let's do that now to try and work out roughly what kind of effect the Earth's wobble would have on the Moon's orbit. Well, the, the Earth's wobble, or the Chandler wobble, which is the change in the uh, the direction that the Earth is rotating, uh, the, the axis around which it's rotating, um, is about 10 metres on the Earth's surface. So the kind of if you imagine just the Earth itself wobbling and uh, around it, its own axis, uh, the, the, the tip of the Earth would change about 10 metres. Now, what's that? That's about 10 metres on the Earth's surface. What we can remember is that the, uh, the Earth's radius is about 6 million metres, and that's just from the definition of what a metre is, incidentally. Um, so let's sk lie skillfully to simplify our life and say that imagine that Chandler wobble is just six metres. So we've got six metres of wobble and the Earth's radius is six million metres. Um, so that tells us that the Chandler wobble is about one part in a million. So that's, that's a handy kind of approximate number we can keep in our heads. So the next bit is, what does this one part in a million wobble do to the moon? Well, you can imagine from the symmetry, or you can see from the symmetry, that if the Earth was a perfect sphere, this would have no effect whatsoever. The sphere would just be the same. No matter how you rotate a sphere, it looks it's the same shape. So it wouldn't matter if the Earth was a sphere. But the Earth is not a sphere. It's flattened. It's an oblate spheroid. It's squashed down at the poles. And that tells us that we have to consider um, something a little bit more complicated. Um, and and this, this flattening is the whole reason why the Earth's orbital dynamics are so interesting uh, in the first place. So um, when we have a shape like a situation like that, that means we have to go beyond sine and cosine, which would be the uh, the things we'd have to care about for spheres, and up to the next the next kind of order in the expansion, which is uh, sine of two times an angle and cosine of two times an angle. So if we're, we're dealing with a system with with that kind of symmetry now, and um, and. If everything was perfectly symmetric, then we would care about um, either just cosine 2 theta or just sine 2 theta. Um, but we're not, because we know that the Earth's angle is a little bit off from the Moon's orbit anyway, so it's going to be a mix of those two things. And that's handy. So the last step in our game is what's called a Taylor expansion. So that's uh, saying, what happens when you make a small change to a quantity? How, you know, how, how Mathematically, how much does a function or a quantity change when you change its components a very, very small amount? Um, in that case, um, the Taylor expansion for sine two theta, which is the you know the, the angle between the moon and the Earth's uh, orbital inclination axis, um, uh, sine two theta t Taylor expands to two theta. So that means when you change theta a little bit, the sine of two theta changes by about two theta. Um, so that means that the change in kind of effect on the lunar orbit will be about two parts per million because we had one part per million for the effect so two times that is two parts per million so for example the lunar distance or the distance to the moon on average is about 400 million meters and um, so we expect this wobble to have an effect of about 800 meters that's two parts per million times times 400 million so that's a kind of surprisingly large effect for a wobble this size which i, I guess you can expect from given how big the earth's um you know the earth's mass is and the earth's uh, squashedness is yeah, wow, well, that's, uh, that's a great example of Fermi estimation and a really interesting answer to that, so thanks, Chuck. Finally, our last question is from Peter Conway, who asks, how do gravitational slingshots work to accelerate space probes as they pass the planets? 
He also asks, why isn't the speed that they gain from gravity as they approach the planet lost as they pull away from it? Yes, so what is a a gravitational slingshot? So a gravitational slingshot is an orbital manoeuvre that we use to accelerate spacecraft to get them to the outer solar system. So it would take loads of fuel to get things to the outer solar system if we just went there directly. Um, So we sort of cheat um, by getting stealing energy from the inner planets to get there. So the idea of a slingshot is that a spacecraft approaches a planet, zooms in pretty close to it and gets swung around by gravity and goes back roughly the direction it came back in, but hopefully with some more speed. Now, what Peter's asking is absolutely right. If you imagine a planet just sitting there in space and the spaceship coming towards it and spinning round again, um, surely the energy it's gained when it comes in as it speeds up is just lost when it goes out again. And that's absolutely correct in the frame of reference of the planet. So if you care about, if what you care about is the speed of the spacecraft compared to the planet, then you are in trouble because you can't gain or lose anything with a slingshot. But that's not what we care about because we want to reach the outer solar system. So we want to, what we care about is is our speed with respect to the sun. Um, unfortunately, the planet is moving with respect to the sun as it just orbits, orbits the sun. So because the planet is moving as our spaceship comes towards it, there's a, the, the, the symmetry is broken and the, the, uh, the spacecraft gains energy from the planet's orbit around the sun. So it steals energy and slows the planet down very, 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 very slightly um, as it comes out the back. Thanks for that, Joe. Uh, and now it's time for some feedback. And this month we do have a postcard. So I think George is really excited to read this one out. So we have a postcard uh, from Sydney, Australia, showing a nice view of the downtown area the harbor and the sydney opera house and it reads dear jodcast thanks for the great podcast i enjoy every minute recently i had some time to fill before heading back to oz from manchester so popped in to see the level telescope it's awesome jod on jeffrey brilliant thanks for that jeffrey uh we're glad you got to go see the level um this is you... a mystery because yes, he, he obviously was in manchester and yet lives in Australia. Two areas that are very um, highly populated by astronomers. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, um, highly populated by other people, too. Also true. I think we're, <laughs> we're, we're looking too far into he, this. He, he could be a bartender at the Walkabout Bar, for all we know. <laughs> well, anyway, Jeffrey, do drop us an email if you're ever in Manchester again. And uh, we have had uh, a lot of email feedback, uh, especially after uh, Adam's request that uh, some of our listeners, or asking any of our musically inclined listeners to remix uh, or reimagine our theme tune, because I think he was getting tired of the same tune after six years, no, eight years. So we've had an enthusiastic response, um, and so many thanks to... John Faulkner and also Jeffrey Moore, who have both sent in some fantastic versions, uh, including uh, a ragtime take on the on the intro music, which is which is really really well done. Um, and we will definitely stick those into future episodes uh, just to to share the musical brilliance of our listeners with our other listeners. Um, and thanks also to Moses Goldman for offering to do a remix. We probably will take you up on that, and we'll get in touch pretty soon. Um, we've also had an email from Samantha Lawrence, who wrote in to tell us how much her and her daughter Harper enjoy the podcast, and, and also our, our list of astronomy resources and links uh, on the Jodcast webpage. And they've also suggested a new link, which, we, which is full of resources, and we will be adding to the webpage. And finally, thanks to Shane McNeil, who's written in to say... Just a quick note to say how much I enjoy the show. I've listened to a number of astronomy podcasts, but I enjoy the Jodcast the most. Always well explained and interesting, but your demeanour in presenting the show is what makes it so good. Well, thanks, Shane. That's that's really nice of you to say, and we're we're glad that 
you find that were the best. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll keep talking about um, llamas and Jeff Goldblum as well as astronomy if we can. So. <laughs> I'm Jeff Goldblum riding a llama. That is our next uh, objective. <laughs> so thanks again for all the lovely feedback. I'm really interested, actually, if, if listeners would like to see a revamp of the Jogcast theme tune, because I think it's taken a bit of a life of its own. I remember Adam saying we would like a transcript of it, someone sort of write out the music with maybe a view to playing with it a little bit, and suddenly it's all these different versions, so it's yeah. quite exciting. Who is who is really attached to the old theme tune? That's what I'd like to know, and who wouldn't mind seeing it change a little bit? Exactly. Answers on a postcard, not on a tweet. We, I w- we prefer postcards. <laughs> And I personally would like to hear an electronic down-tempo ambient version of the uh, Jodcast theme song, if somebody would be daring enough to try that, or some other form of uh, ambient or electronic or space music. (laughs) There we go. George has made his request, so get cracking, people. (laughs) And on Facebook, thank you very much for all the shares and likes. And on Twitter, thanks for all the tweets, retweets, and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Dr. David Kipping and Dr. Rob Bezik for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver, and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, John. 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 John.